If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. I'm Stephen Murens. We've recorded some previous episodes by lawyers who were recently retired discussing how the practice of immigration law has evolved over the years. The episodes that Diana Okanachoff and I recorded include episodes with Daryl Larson, Joshua Son, Dennis McRae, David Thomas, and others. And some of them in particular, including Probably the one with Dennis McRae. I've gone back to listen to some of the so some of the tidbits that he discussed. I've used almost as a podcast episode mentor in how I approach things. This episode, we are joined by a young lawyer who has started his own law firm, Will Tao. Will is the Canadian immigration and refugee lawyer and the founder of Heron Law Office. Will went to the University of Ottawa for a law school, articled at my firm, Larley Rosenberg. Uh, where he then worked as an associate for a few years before joining our former podcast co-host Peter Edelman at his firm Edelman & Co. After a few years there, he started his own firm in his sixth or seventh year of practice. During this episode, we discuss what got Will into immigration law, why he decided to start his own firm, how his own experiences with his now wife's immigration and temporary resident visa applications impacted his practice, how he balances work and family life, how he balances client files and general advocacy that he does, whether he thinks he'll take paternity leave and his thoughts on paternity leave, as well as taking lengthy sabbaticals, which is something that Dennis McRae recommended in his uh, episode, and uh, Will's general approach to practice and even whether he'll uh, run for politics one day. It's a packed episode, and I hope that in the same way that people have commented that 
Some of the retirement episodes have provided useful nuggets or messages for their life. I hope hearing Will's story similarly provides motivation or guidance or some sort of inspiration for young lawyers just starting out. Once again, if you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Why don't you take us through what actually got you into immigration law to begin with? And I think what we'll do is we'll walk a little bit through your career. Mm. To set the stage, we on Borderlines have interviewed quite a few, uh, at the time, recently retired lawyers who kind of describe how the practice evolved during their career. And we haven't yet interviewed and had a discussion about the other side, which is people who have started and their take on practicing immigration law. Mm-hmm. So, Will, maybe you can start with what got you into immigration law in the first place? Because I think, unlike me, you knew in law school that you wanted to practice immigration. Is that correct? Yeah, um, I did my undergrad at uh, UBC with Dr. Henry Yu in uh, migration history. So um, even from that period of time, I think my focus had always been on migrant communities. They were my friends. I was embedded into different communities and seeing the stories and um I, I would be remiss not to mention my my parents' own stories, right? My late father uh, immigrated one of the early waves from mainland China uh, before Expo. Um, and, uh, you know, they were able to stay. They, they both came as doctors. So it's interesting, the whole foreign credentials uh, issue as well. But they, they weren't able to practice doctors. My, my late father had to start again and, and, and take a, a master's program. He first came to work in Chinese medicine. Um and then they were able to stay because of the the the, the, the tenement policy. Uh, and these are things I, you know, we never talked about growing up, but those are things I slowly uncovered as I uh, went through regaining my an understanding of my cultural background and my 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 roots. Um, and I think that just naturally gravitated towards an area of law that I could help folks in and navigate the very struggles and stories that I I grew up with, right? Even though I was born in Canada. Have you gone back to your, uh, like, um, before your father passed or your mother now to get their full stories? Um, I was able to uh, go to Shanghai and, and see family and, and, and you know, we share photographs and stuff. But going to my late father's, uh, with my father at the time, uh, ancestral hometown in Shing, China, was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Because it's a whole village of folks with the same last name. Um, and they, there was actually a local curator of history there who mapped the whole family tree. So I knew I was 23rd generation and, um, mm-hmm. seeing all the relatives and folks I didn't even know existed, but all kind of look like me. Um, it was very, very exciting and, and, and learning the culture because Shaoxing culture is so different from Shanghainese culture. And I was, I grew up, grew up in a very Shanghainese household and, and Shanghainese actually there, there's a, a lot of, um, it's interesting that they 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 have a, a reputation like some of the men are a little more effeminate or they they kind of listen to their spouses who are you know Shanghainese women are supposed to be very kind of like uh, loud and active and um, very demanding and so there's there's like this kind of like culture that I grew up in uh, very much shaped by matriarchal um, very matriarchal um, so to see also like there was a, a nearby culture that even though just two hours away, some away, but very different food, very different community based off of Saoxing wine and 
different spices and energy. It was, it was, it was eye opening. And I think, you know, that's always led to now I think about my work. I'm always eager to go back to the roots of like, tell me your story from, you know, there, there must be facts missing because I had facts missing for so much of my life. Right. So. And in law school, did you take immigration law? You did. Yeah, I did. Uh, with, uh, with uh, Lauren Waldman <laughs> and uh, uh, Jackie Swaziland. I called them Prof Waldman and Prof Swaziland, but uh, yeah, they were, they were incredible. It was at university of Ottawa, definitely mm-hmm. eye-opening experience. And um, yeah, it was like experience-based learning too, where they asked us to go to hearings and, and record our, our experiences. So that was great too. It was in pure black letter. And then I did corporate immigration with uh, Howard Greenberg, which was really interesting too, because they oh, were wow. doing the whole, they were, they had the whole merger at the time, I think. Um uh, with their firm and and they and you know they would fly back and forth from Toronto to come and teach our course, but it was very much like practical. Like you're getting a call from India at like seven a.m. Like what are you supposed to do? Um, so it, yeah, that the definitely shaped it. Um, I also what did they legal... teach in uh, corporate immigration law? I didn't know that. Like I'm surprised that they had such a specific topic. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. And um, I mean, honestly, at that time, I, I did also get my summer position at Heenan Blakey, which is another whole story we'll probably get into. Um, but um, so I was semi checked out, I'd have to say, but we we did we did a lot of work around like work permits at that time. It was interesting though because it was right it was at LMO switching to LMIA. Mm. Um, so as the course was taught, it was like none of this is going to be relevant in just like a couple months. <laughs> yeah. So it was really interesting. Like, um, but a lot of it was on like the different ways workers get in, and I think the big thing I learned was like the practicalities of it. Like the course was not black letter at all. It was like. I really appreciated those practitioner courses uh, in law school. Honestly, um, I had a practitioner who taught my immigration law course. And um, for me, it made a really big difference because there's so, like law school is just so incredibly theoretical, just having an understanding of what the actual practice is going to look like. I was not a lover of the law school, you know, just theoretical, but to understand um, what work was going to look like actually that kept me in the program as long as I did well I finished it obviously but uh I don't know um it's it's cool that um that especially when it's immigration because I think the black letter law of immigration is so different from the day-to-day practice of immigration it's cool that you have practitioners on both sides yeah absolutely I mean I had so I had regular immigration I did corporate immigration I actually did even immigration clinic um so I was at the um Ottawa South um ottawa south uh immigration uh clinic um and this was with uh michael bossan and uh leila de mordash so i had like some of the leading practitioners um in clinic with me and just watching them do their work and the mm-hmm. level of detail and they were dealing with you know very vulnerable clients with refugees and being able to be client facing and start drafting affidavits and work on agencies and stuff like that so yeah i was really seeing the whole range right right off the bat in law school which was even just three options to do immigration in law school. Um, I don't know about you, Steve. I'm the the farthest into my practice of the three of us. But for me, there was one choice and one choice only. Um, I did another kind of immigration related thing, but it was like I took one of those like, um, you know, equality and social justice classes and I did an immigration related topic, but there was really only one option, even at UBC at the time. And the fact that now there would be multiple classes courses, even at a school the size of, of Ottawa is pretty amazing just to show how much more attention 
I remember when I went to, I went to Queens University because I got an early acceptance there and they didn't have an immigration course at all at the time that I went to go see that school. So I think that the, the, the interest level in immigration at the law school level is really evolving over time. Yeah, I, I, I honestly can't say what U of T had. Immigration wasn't on my radar at all. Really? When I was in law school. I focused on insolvency, actually. Oh my like goodness. I took every insolvency course, the personal wow. property security. There was like a dedicated course on liens and the order of liens. And I unfortunately can't say what U of T had. I know now they, I know for sure now what they have. Mm -hmm. uh, quite a few immigration classes. I think immigration law as a, as a whole has gotten more popular in recent years. Is Did that you notice, part of what um, drew you to Ottawa in the first place, Will? Or? I, I didn't know none of that existed. I, it was sort of a, I, I didn't do well in my LSAT. I had no other choice situation. But um, yeah. no, I, I was also because there was a NIPSIA program I was going to do with uh, international relations because that's what I did my undergrad in. I wanted to do international law or like, mm. something to do with employment or labor. But the other thing that was amazing at U Ottawa that I I, sh I, I failed to mention was mm. You know, one of our student mentors for our, our Asian Law Students Society, or not, our, our professor mentors was Jamie Liu, Professor Liu, right? Mm, and yeah, yeah. Um, just having, yeah, times. and Jamie Liu, you know, being there, student level, like, inviting us out to, you know, dinners and lunches to, to, to bring the Asian community together, taking constitutional law, which wasn't immigration, but it had such a focus because Jennifer Bond taught it, right? right. So. It's so interesting that all these folks, you know, were part of the the, the conversation and part of the the early influences. And and yeah. you know, when I didn't actually want to become an immigration lawyer right off the bat because I called folks actually some some mentors in the in the field and I said I was interested. And they're like, hey, five years from now, think about it because you need to establish your roots at another firm, do co corporate work or solicitor's work or litigation work, and after five years, maybe consider immigration. That was yeah. like the blanket advice I received. Um, there's no articling in immigration. Don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. um, that was sort of the feedback. Um, but when it came down to um, after the collapse of Heenan Blakey, which was the firm I summered at in Vancouver, oh, um, and I was out of a you know I was out of a job within a, a, a sort of couple months of graduating, it, it became like okay, got to go back to your roots. What you know, what you've right. done in law school, you really have to create something. And, and gratefully. Uh, and graciously, Stephen and Ryan and Peter were there at the time too. Oh, cool. I, I find it really interesting. A lot of that advice, that blanket advice you get at law school feels really, once you're actually practicing, it feels pretty tired. You know, like the stuff about you can't go from a big firm, you know, what it, you can't go from a small firm to a big firm, but you can go from a big firm to a small firm. So this is why you have to start at a big firm. I remember hearing that and like, I'm not sure that, that there's any practical reality to that because I've mm -hmm. never tried seeing, I don't often see people going from small to big, but at the same time, I I don't know. I, do, I find that um, I always tell students that I meet with to take all of that blanket advice with a grain of salt. I think people determine their own personal results by the connections that they make and what's important to them and how they, you know, how self-motivated they are and all that sort of thing. So it's interesting that that was your experience yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, the caveat that I give, like I generally tell people, unless they're 100% sure that they want to focus and practice one area of law, the advantage of those big firms is you do get exposure mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. to a lot of areas of law. And you'll, if there's even a part of you that in the back of your mind is thinking, oh, I wonder what practicing at a big firm, a big corporate firm is like, you can do that early on and either like it or get it out of your system. So you don't yeah. possibly wonder what if down the road. 
at uh, Heen and Blakey, which was a large a mm-hmm. corporate law firm um, that practiced in all areas. Did you do immigration there as well? Yeah, I was uh, working a little bit with uh, Dom Terrien there, and uh, he had the corporate uh, immigration. He was doing a lot of what I thought was very cool, flying around, meeting clients, doing entrepreneurial immigration. And um, I also was really interested in the entertainment stuff. So Art Evansall yeah. and all the corporate lawyers there were good. Um, so they were doing work on like major, major clients and major films and stuff like that. So I was like, this is exciting. What um, brought you to Heen and Blakey at the first place when you were going through that whole art of playing, like looking for an uh, position? What was that? It, it well, yeah, it, it, it was actually one of the few offers I got because I didn't go through. It was actually, I think even they didn't do OCIs. They, it came later through. Um, that was one of the reasons. Um, the other reason was it just, you know, Suits was filmed there in Toronto. It was very, very, it just seemed like the young, hip kind of okay. like cool firm that was doing entertainment and sports. And that's hilarious. It which just, they it were. It doesn't seem like the will I know today. And politics, John like, It's hilarious. Yeah. It was, I mean, like Brian Burke would be walking in the office. Like <laughs> it, was, it was stuff like that. It was just like, you know, that's so crazy that, you know, Peter Gall and all the folks who were doing those, you know, amazing things um but and again no knock on Heenan Blakey but even some of the lawyers there saw you know when when the firm was about to collapse they're like this might be a blessing in disguise for you Will because it didn't seem like you really enjoyed your summer as much like you weren't doing necessary work that you really understood or it seemed like you cared as much about and um you know it seems like you have something that you you're passionate about like you go pursue it and I had quite a few of the mentors at Heenan Blakey tell me that like listen you'll you'll do fine you you know you can you can hold your head up just find something that you care about and i think that that early message was something that resonated with me it's like you have to do something you love for work because you can teach yourself to love stuff but there's some stuff that's like inherent to just your upbringing who you are that you're passionate about and at the same time i I had a you know i I, I had uh, met my uh then girlfriend when I was on exchange in, in China and we started having to think about her own immigration issues, including, uh, you know, and it happened uh, a little bit later on when, when I was an Arkling student, but she had her first visitor visa refused. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, having, having, it's interesting having a family member, a loved one going through, you know, visitor refusals and then visitor approval and study permit and spousal and citizenship, like, and, and my career actually, and what I was passionate about and what I practiced and wrote about, mirrored exactly wow. you know her experiences right i remember steven one of the and steve i mean i i i always throw you praise actually i throw both you praise and i i met you first at one of the i think it was joyce murray's consultation or something like that where i saw oh, him wow. i was just like wow you are so knowledgeable I, you know i, I want to learn so much from you and then steve obviously uh, at, at he at larry rosenberg um but steve i think there was discussion about sham marriages and, and marriage fraud and and I know Steve was blogging and I think he really encouraged me to, to put my voice out there a bit in ways that, um, I mean, obviously there's sometimes source of tension. I put my voice out too much to when I was, you know, I was still a student, but, you know, writing a story about, um, my own relationship and how, you know, we didn't have a huge diamond ring. We, you know, we, we, we have photos cooking together and, and, and how those were signs of a fraudulent marriage. Um, you know, really kind of, it drew, it, 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 it lit a fire in me of being like, there's something oh, deeply, yeah deeply wrong with the system and decision makers who are making those decisions. So for sure, if you don't have a lot of social media presence, if you don't go through the big 
you know, glossy wedding with the the white or red dress, you know, suddenly yeah. it's like you're not conforming and therefore this doesn't look real to immigration. Yeah. So I wrote an article for a UK media called This Sham Marriage Sounds Like Mine. And then when I posted it, it went it went like it went viral. And then actually it's like amazing. all sorts of folks, uh city councillors, because I, I for some reason I again growing up in the city, I, I was able to get a bit of a, a Twitter following already at a relatively early uh time in, in Twitter's development. But you know, folks would like city councilors, politicians, like various community folks would be like, hey, that sounds like my marriage too. Like I didn't have enough money at that time. I didn't have a photo. I didn't have a ceremony. Like why is this visa office holding folks to such a high standard because they're yeah. immigrants, right? So yeah. Do you think sure. that the, that visitor visa refusal and just the process of going through it also lit a fire under you in terms of representing others? Totally. Um, I think it changed my work, frankly, because yeah. um I mean, sure, Stephen Ryan will have comments on my my my, my abilities as an artist student, but I, you know, I, I wasn't super detail oriented. I didn't really not not that it just personality wise, I was big picture. I was creative. I was not really, you know, not that I wasn't worried about the details, but that wasn't my main thing. And then, you know, that visitor visa gets refused because it didn't have my mother's full name and it didn't have you know, it, it didn't tie her to me as in, in, in a relationship. Like, it seems simple enough, like include your mom's, you know, bank statement. But are you sure that's your mom? Is it their full name? And and like, I think that at that stage was like, okay, there's another level of detail that needs to be done in this work. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I think that still resonates to me today. I mean, we can, I just want to pause on um, kind of your background on the, what's interesting just to think about you know, let's say that Will Tao is submitting the same visitor visa application in 2023. The refusal letter. So when your girlfriend's, your then girlfriend's visa was refused, the internal refusal notes clearly specified what the issue was, right? A mm. name on a bank statement. Now it would be Chinook, right? Like it wouldn't say yeah. anything. And you wouldn't have you any way Canada, of knowing what you needed to correct. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's it's crazy to pause and think like how possibly different your life would be if you're doing the same oh. trying to do the same thing now instead of then just because of a software that's used to process visas. A hundred percent. And I, I count my blessings every day because uh, I know I see some of these clients now and I'm like, you know, you're going to be separated from your loved one just because of the way data database decision making is working and how you've been flagged already by the system and your historical rates of approval. Like yeah. and these are things you can't control. And um, you know, end of the day, I think Peter Larley wrote an impassioned letter in his submission being like, Hey, I'm like his principal or, you know, at, <laughs> at Larley Rosenberg. And, you know, I, I will personally guarantee that she gets out of like, she, he actually wrote that in the, in the, in the letter. Um, yeah. But now our submissions, like, are they even reading them? So it's like, you know, it's, yeah. we're in a very, very different uh, time. Yeah, it is for sure. And so um, because you, you summered at Heenan Blakey hmm. and then um, by the, you went back to school for that final year and then you had to find articles because Heenan Blakey was no longer there to offer you a full article. And so you articled with Steve at, uh, yeah. at Larley. Okay. I thought you were already called to the bar when you came in. No, they articled and I remember they were like, this is, we haven't done this in a while. This might be a really bad idea for us, but let's give it a <laughs> shot. And um, no, it worked out. And I mean, after me came Krisha and like, it seems like uh, we, we opened the gates a little bit. Yeah. for some. I mean, everyone better after me has been way better than me, but I think, you know, we, I think we finally got some very, very strong. I mean, uh, so you moved Connie here Aiden. for that purpose, huh? 
I was, I was, I know, I, w- I was from Vancouver, so I came, I came okay, back. Okay, so you came to, back. Okay. I came back, like, yeah, I went to law school in Ottawa, I came back, uh, knew I had, you always wanted to be here, uh, okay, family here. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's um, such an interesting story, but it all, it all worked yeah. out, right? Because that, that, that actually the summer after, so Heenan Blakey had its issues, I was actually working kind of part-time with Heenan Blakey in, in China when I went there um, on exchange, because I was exchange, checked out, I was right. like, I got a job already, don't really care about law school. Need to take care of the next part of my life. I you know, significant other went to Songqing, China, studied there. You know, best grades I've ever got in my life. Can't say I did much studying, but uh, yeah. You know, so coming back, you know, with a couple months left, no more job left. Go figure out it out. It was it, it was it was tough. Um, of course, I hear now way more difficult, challenging stories. So it all in all, in retrospect, I'm grateful for having gone through that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is kind of how it works when you're a practitioner. You kind of have to be able to like hit the ground running and pivot. <laughs> well, that's certainly the the pandemic era thing. You're just like, oh, mm. job, no job. Okay, go. What am I going to do next? <laughs> Reinvent yeah. myself. Yeah. yeah. And you worked at uh, Larley Rosenberg for a few years and then mm. switched and went to our former uh, podcast co-host, Peter Edelman. Yeah. Right. Just, he makes it. Uh, I'm the only one that you've never uh, worked with. Uh... Yeah. There's still yeah. time. There's still, there's still time. time. There's still, there's still time. time. Well, Every, yeah. Everyone's on a two-year transition plan. So, right. Uh, I mean, exactly. Uh, no. Um, yeah. So, uh, that, so that's I a mean, switch from a firm that um, like Larley Rosenberg would have more of a, there's an, an at the time there was a, there was a litigation wing and a yeah. corporate kind of wing at Larley Rosenberg and you switched to Peter Edelman's firm, which had more of a refugee law legal aid focus. So mm-hmm. what were you doing could... with, with Steve? Like what were you doing at Larley Rosenberg mostly? I, I was kind of tweening between litigation and solicitors work. Um, I think, yeah, Peter Larley had some very, very interesting clients, especially from, mm-hmm. from mainland China, a lot of inadmissibility stuff, appeals, immigration appeals. And I, I think I learned so much from watching well, Peter. Well, it was Newcan. You were working. Newcan. Uh, I did some Newcan cases. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Newcan misrepresentation. So like case, a citizenship yeah. um, revocation, yeah. PR revocation. Yeah. What, watching Peter Larley do an IED is like art. It's like, it's like, oh, yeah. it's like watching a show. It's, it's so incredible. The report, like you walk in, he walks into the room, like, there's just, a, there's just, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to explain, uh, but I've, I've kind of like learned, I learned so much from that. And then I, I, I had an appeal practice and then, you know, watching Ryan and his, his ability to do such high volume and in, in, in terms of um, the solicitor side, stay so organized. Um, so I, I did like a tweener both. And I think I brought in a lot of international student stuff to the, mm-hmm. to the firm as well. Cause I started speaking at schools. And of course that was a time when my, my spouse was going through, or my, my then girlfriend was going through, uh, her studies and stuff. So, um, yeah, the move was really, it was just, I wanted to see litigation from a, a different angle of the, the kind of strategic, the federal court, um, mm-hmm. seeing what, uh, Peter Edelman was doing Justice Edelman now. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it, I'm so grateful that for that move too, because I, I got to see sort of two different sides of the coin, uh, yeah. And now I find like my practice and what I try and build here at Heron is like the best of both worlds, so to speak. I try and I like I bring it all together with like you need the business side to pay the bills, you know. Yeah, L- lawyers have to be business people uh, too because you know, end of the day, it's processes, it's a feeding, it's not only just feeding yourself but feeding your staff and your team members. You're responsible for a lot of folks now and their their well being and their livelihood. Yeah. Uh, and then the Edelman approach of like. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You can go way below this, beyond the surface, and there's so much to to research and dig into. And um, you know, remember uh, Peter? I, I, I feel like I have to call him Justice Edelman now, but he would spend weeks sometimes generating and months actually generating these binders full of memos to himself of like just deep diving into one specific term or area of the law and his his, his binder would be that thick and um he would write his submissions like the last day but he like spent all this time marinating thinking yeah. putting together his thoughts researching knowing every little nuance of the thing uh, and documenting it, um, that kind of stuff. I was like, I've never seen that ever before. But that's how he learned and picked up things and dove into areas that others didn't go to. And, you know, watching some of the cases like Mung at the time, Mung Wanzhou and his work on that and as being able mm-hmm. to assist a bit on that. And that's on, it's a matter of public knowledge, so I can share that. Um, and then just watching his approach to some of the complex and admissibility cases and of course, Erica now carrying the torch, Aaron, uh, the, the firm's full of, and Wally, uh, mm-hmm. full of incredible intellectual lawyers and now trying to find that balance of when to be intellectual and when to like, yeah, have to run a business is, is sort of what Aaron is. The, mm-hmm. the, the so are you, master. are you still interested in the strategic litigation? Or are you more interested in the kind of individualistic approach? Um, a bit of both. Uh, I think there's times where we, we want to strategically litigate, um, mm-hmm. where we want to collaborate, and we're doing that now on the the some of the AI litigation we're doing, although it hasn't mm-hmm. a lot of consent, so it hasn't made its way into the public yeah, so forth. Exactly but right. um, you know, we're also um, I don't know. I I think this I learned from Steve and, and and definitely Peter as well. But this idea of a tipping and figuring out what's going on behind the scenes of the show, um, you know, being an information source for other practitioners as well putting out relevant information putting out news um so yeah we're we're, we're still i mean uh, we're still young from two years in trying to figure out our identity but i think i have lawyers that are really motivated to help folks uh, as a primary sort of neighbor principal helping folks that they care about in the community um but also um doing work that that feeds their soul and feeds their um their lives i think it's a it's a good balance right now um we're yeah. hoping to keep it 
I think it's a really interesting uh, quandary, though, this, you know, I always used to think that it was a difference between being a solicitor or being a litigator, but within the litigation world, there's still a lot, there's a lot of uh, nuance there because the idea of being like, I like the litigation work, but I like it because of working through a specific problem with an individual, the strategic mm-hmm. litigation to me, the the binders and binders of legal material, the intellectual litigation to me, I, for me, if it's not about the human, the individual, you know, the face-to-face kind of part of it, I lose the attention span <laughs> to be totally frank, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe at a younger stage in my career, I would have been more into it. But for me, it's just about like the human. That's why like, I like the first instance. I'm not interested in the, in the appeals. I don't want to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. I would like to be in the refugee hearing with the individual. Mm-hmm. But I think this is the type of thing that like earlier in my practice, I wouldn't have really turned my mind to. It was just like, well, I want to be a litigator. I get that. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's sort of, um, it's interesting to sort of catch you in this conversation at this stage in your career just kind of percolating on what's the part that really excites you and gets you in bed and like yeah there's also that angle of like finding out what you like versus finding out what you like in practice versus finding out what or finding out what you like in practice versus thinking about what it is that you think you'd like right like you might Mm -hmm. think that you like the deep charter dive yes yes. but in practice it's not what uh, interests you so much and for me I do a fair bit of federal court work. Same thing. I've never actually done a charter challenge for whatever reason. I don't like IRB as much and I don't like mm-hmm. witness prep as much as I like well, thinking I through the legal prep. challenge in federal court. And it's it's weird how hyper-focused almost what our yeah, likes totally. are and how we gravitate to it. And mm-hmm. if I might add one thing, it's also like what you're actually good at. Like mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. the idea of the charter litigation, but I do find that like my brain, like, I don't know if it's because I'm dyslexic, what it is, but like my brain, like the following those lines mm-hmm. of inquiry, like I just like, you know, you talked about attention to detail, you know, like that's where maybe like for me, if you want to talk about a personal story and getting to the core of somebody's situation and what the trauma is that they suffered, why this narrative is, where's the gap, what you said, Will, I can mm-hmm. be like, hey, there's a gap here. Let's go to that. Let's understand what mm-hmm. what part of the story can you tell, which part is going to be injurious for you to try and go through, you know, I can work on that personal level. But when I get yeah. too mm-hmm. abstract and theoretical, it's just, it's not good. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. easy for me, you know? So mm-hmm. having to be really honest, because I yeah. love the idea of pushing yeah. the pushing the envelope. So, I mean, Peter and yeah. I used to have this conversation all the time. He was like, I'm not changing the law enough, you know? And to <laughs> me, it's like, that was not even my ambition. Like, I'm, I'm done with that. Yeah. I, like, I don't yeah. have that ambition anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would be lying to say if I have this strategic intellect right now at some of the charter stuff. And even some of that, like when I read it, I'm like, that seems like it's out of base. But I think strategic litigation can also be very much telling the human story, but also showing that that human story has greater ramifications for the system, right? And for I think sure. that's where our strategic litigation has been, be it the uh, parent-grandparent uh, lottery system when I worked with, with Aaron Roth on that, where it's, you yes. know, we had clients coming in who had disabilities who said, you know, the speed test, we just couldn't complete the form, right? Totally. Or now we have clients that are, you know, we're doing litigation right now on a postgraduate work permit case um, where an applicant wasn't given uh, the opportunity to even provide evidence. Um, but it's it's a, it's a, of their compliance 
but it's like a broader picture because it's it's the government trying to you know build in barriers and and remove certain students at certain times from this narrowing filtering P, you know PR system, which I think you know you talked about with other folks as well. How the the numbers are there's so many international students, but only so spots for PR. But you know these yeah. these kind of gray, quick policies of hey folks, thanks for studying, let's leave now, um, is part of that. So Definitely. you know I, I think I agree with you. I'm trying to figure out how to bridge because I'm I, I find myself my strength is the story, personal storytelling, the yeah, affidavits, the, the IED stuff too. But how do I bridge that into like showing the ramifications for the broader system and how that impacts it? Well, what I see from you is that you have an ability to translate it into like your public facing stuff, which isn't necessarily um, like in front of a courtroom, but you're able to communicate it in a very, very effective way. Like when you spoke at the conference last week, like it really resonated with the whole group. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm sort of at the point where I feel like litigating this AI stuff, it's Mm -hmm. not going to, it's not the right it's not the right, I don't know. I just don't feel like we're going to yeah. break in federal court. I just don't. I agree. And and with Chinook, I mean, if it was, you know, we started the conversation behind the scenes on that. Uh, we brought it up in some of our cases, but ultimately it came because of what was going on in Quebec at the time, right? With yeah. the, the, the the French language, uh, the, the Francophone students, um, and a lot of the work that LJ Lou did there. Uh, and it led to the... Um, the CIMM doing the parliamentary committee doing a whole deep investigation. And I think that has created more change than any litigation would have, right? The, exactly. the, the federal court would just say, we're not going to weigh in on the, on these, you know, on, on what the government should be doing, you know, maybe send it back, maybe not, but you know. No. And I think uh, even the early decisions that we've seen is that like, as long as a human did, uh, you talked about this case, Steve, at, um, at the conference as well. Like, as long as a human in some way interface with this decision-making process, we're going to say that it's reasonable, you know, even if the entire triage process was artificial and it wouldn't have, um, you know, it wouldn't have arisen were it not for the intervention of Chinook. I, you know, I just I, I just don't think that they're really going to dive in in that way. So mm-hmm. I think it's a really interesting time in the sense that um, that, everyone is going to have to find their best skill set and like work to their strength. And I think a collaborative approach, I think this is why I really like practicing on the West coast is because um, there doesn't seem to be this like super um, competitive adversarial mm-hmm. nature. It's like, we're all very happy for Erica and Aaron and Molly to be doing mm-hmm. their strategic litigation. And mm-hmm. you know, you'll be doing the will truth on, on <laughs> online and Steve is going to be mastering Twitter and I'm going to be doing my own quiet little thing in the, you know, at the tribunal, you know, and it's like, everyone will collaborate and it's like, this mm-hmm. is a thing for will let's get, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. We're definitely sending stuff around. I, I love that about us. Yeah. Um, but you know, too. I, yeah, we'll I do call feel one another in as expert, you know, subject matter experts. And I just feel like it's mm-hmm. a super collaborative environment out here. Yeah. But I do feel, I mean, it's interesting. I tweeted about this a, a couple of days ago. I don't know. It didn't have that much traction on, on Twitter, but you know, in, in other areas, you see these lawyers who practice 15, 20, 30 years and, and, and they command and they rightfully do command this level of respect. And, and, and everyone's like, you know, they are the, the ones who are leading the cases. They're the ones we need to speak to. And there are those in our bar as well. And I think we should give them flowers all the time for the work they've done to build it. But I think with this move to this, like everyone can do immigration, the technology, the kind of making things simpler, the, it's almost like folks can jump into this space with just, you know, with, with a little bit of tech skills and a little bit of this and that and start really 
being able to to navigate waters that we spend time trying to learn and figure out and maybe help build the path for. So I do see this tension between old and new. Uh, a little a bit. phenomenal point. Um, and also the big, the other reason why I've said before that people can jump right in is because the department keeps changing how people apply, um, the move to online applications, the move to ministerial instructions. People who are, you know, more tech savvy, um, more engaged in social media seem to be able to adapt to those changes quicker. Like I remember when they moved to the online applications, there were some people who waited, some representatives who waited until the day that it became mandatory to get an online account, whereas others had dove in. And by the time, you know, within a few months had kind of mastered um, what people, senior practitioners were only just learning. So your relationship with um, Lou and Zainab yeah, from Andrew. Twitter, you guys are always cross-tweeting each other. I don't yeah. know if they're... Do you work together on files? Like, how uh, that, we, we do. We do. We, that we collaborate. Um, I, um, so I went, to law, I went to law school with Lou, actually, at the University of Ottawa. So Lou was, I think, a year or two below me uh, when I graduated. So we kept in touch and actually reconnected, I think, at a Winnipeg CBA conference. So shout out to the, the conferences. It's good to go to those. Um, and then... Um, when uh, when all the litigation happened and they started filing the Okrin affidavit in a bunch of unrelated cases, this is before they, they even had the case. They're like, we're going to file this affidavit. Uh, Zainab, who was on Twitter, and we've been sort of communicating throughout, um, emailed me and messaged me and we're just like, hey, like I've been, I've, I've been reading what you've been saying. You've been reading what I've been saying. Like, we're kind of like, let's connect on this. So we ended up connecting, sharing our thoughts on Chinook. Um, and I already had a podcast with Lou that we're on hiatus um, for a little bit on. Um, so we brought Zainab in there. We also contacted the council in um, Okrin and actually helped behind the scenes trying to navigate the legal arguments and the cross-examinations and questions we wanted to be answered. Uh, so it, it was very much behind the scenes kind of community organizing style uh, lawyering. But uh, interesting enough, like I've, I've done a lot of community organizing and, and, and um, that's my volunteer work outside i used to chair the cultural communities advisory committee for city of vancouver trying to get input from different communities and so you know using a lot of those skill sets to kind of generate uh build community and now we have this informal collective of ai interested you know uh i don't i don't know we're not the algorithm the justice league yet but we're trying to create a name <laughs> and create a we're trying to create we actually have students now who are interested we might have some funding so a lot of the stuff is just like how do we create a collective that can speak for just more data transparency more ai transparency and being a little bit of a, a voice in the ear of a department that really wants to push through these projects i mean seven out of ten of the algorithmic impact assessments that have been published published for all government sectors Seven out of ten are for immigration, and they're all based on efficiency and moving things forward. So, you know, there's there's a there's a reason why we're the testing ground. I know Dr. Petra Molnar has done a lot of work in that area of space too, saying that you know, and it's it's refugees, it's migrant communities, it's surveillance, um, and we're seeing this similar thing in immigration. It's just efficiency moving it forward as opposed to auditing functions. I know Sean Rehag's uh, appearance was really inspiring. I, I've listened to that episode a couple times now. We listened to, to Professor Rehag speak to. Mm-hmm. AI is so powerful. It could it could solve so many problems. It could be used as an auditing tool. Why are we using it as efficiency number one as a, as a tool? So mm-hmm. it's it's really it's it's such it's such a fascinating space uh, to be working in right now. How do you mm-hmm. find balancing kind of your your policy advocacy with client files? 
Uh, it's tough. It really is tough. Um, having a good team to assist you on some of the more nitty gritty stuff now, especially give you some space to think through. Because uh, so when you go on your deep dives, that I try and do the Peter Edelman create a whole uh, document thing. It, it can take you and spend days just oh, delving sure. into articles and case law and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also about choosing files that I think can push forward your interest in those bigger issues right so like i'm looking actively looking for the next trv case that was decided by ai that i can strategically litigate or you know starting to input chinook arguments into our litigation so when i I think our clients have found value in like not only are we going to deal with your case and and put the strongest foot forward and tell your story but we're going to place your story in the larger narrative and give a little bit of at least fear to the government that hey we're, we're looking at the client's situation as unreasonable, but we're also looking at your system as well. And if, you know, do you really want to be in court explaining how these systems work yeah. or telling us you're not going to be able to disclose the documents because it's hidden behind some black box? Or would you prefer to just let them you know, get a consent and, and move on with things? So we've been able to leverage it, I think, in an in successful ways too. Mm-hmm. And then balancing your work, starting a firm with, uh, I know you have a young family, yeah, so, second child on the way too. Um, second child on the way. Um, congrats. I mean, I already thank knew you. that, but congrats. <laughs> so the uh, so in terms of like when running your own firm, um, yeah. having all the policy advocacy, having the um, the clients that you work for, mm. and I can edit this part out. I don't know if it's public, yeah. but the LLM. Yeah, you can talk about yeah, okay. that. Uh, the yeah. fact that, um, and maybe we can get into this as well, that you're going to be starting an LLM. Yeah. Where, like, I, I think people who are listening are going to wonder, yeah. how how does he have time for it all? How does he balance? How does he decide yeah. what to prioritize at a given time? That's a fair point. I mean, I think everything everyone has to make sacrifices. You can't have that that perfect balance. And in my personal um setup my sacrifice probably has been i i'm not trying to bill the same amount as some of i know those folks who who bill you know next level uh maybe that it is generational wealth for them but for me you know i i'm thinking i can do that possibly in my 50s or 60s when i'm tired or when, right now when i have energy and i want to do you know i have something i'm passionate about i i want to pursue it so i, I definitely don't if they call it a billable hour bill, I don't bill as much as maybe some other lawyers in the city or in, and, and some folks have said, your practice looks a little too fun. It is fun because I'm at the stage right now where I want to have fun with it. Right. Um, that's not to say, I don't think I can, we support ourselves successfully and I, and I make it a priority, especially with my new lawyers to say, Hey, take care of your financial wellness first, because it's such a crucial element. If you're not making enough to pay rent and support your lives in this expensive city, you're not going to be happy in your work. Right. And you're not going to be able to have that, freedom or space to pursue that other stuff. Um, but in the other ways, I think it's just everything in my life kind of meets at a certain point where I don't feel like uh, I'm necessarily working per se. I'm just on this constant journey to find out more about what I'm doing with my life. And I think, I think with that, um, I mean, obviously, the kids and family, that has to be number one priority, and, and, and it always is will be for me. Uh, but outside of that, like, I don't have that many other passions in life. I'm not doing too much else with other uh, other organizations. Now, I, actually, I, I am. That's, that's, <laughs> I edit that out. 
I, I'm going to be stepping off some of my community stuff to do the, the, the schooling. But I think it all kind of meets at one point, if that makes sense, where it's like I can take my casework and then suddenly I'm taking a point out of that and then I'm doing legal research on it and I'm looking at the strategic policy advice. I'm tweeting, but when I'm tweeting, I'm tweeting in mind with a case that I'm thinking about or working on. Uh, and, of course, being a, a firm owner, you got to clean toilets too, right? Like I'm, I'm the toilet cleaner at, at our office, right? And I make sure the fridge is stocked with milk. I'm, I have to do those things. But it all feels like it's going towards the same goal or same vision or same family, uh, my, my outside of family, family. Um, so it doesn't feel tiring. It's, it's, it's interesting. I just, it doesn't make, it does. I don't feel exhausted from it. If that makes sense. Um, I think. How was that that transition from like just being a lawyer to like actually having to run a small business? Was that like a huge, um, adjustment for you? Um, it was because I think at other firms and wherever I was, I was always a bit of the thorn on the side, the critic, the critic in the meetings, the like going against the populism kind of person in that. Now you have to create firm culture and create systems and create how to bring people together and social events. Um, so that part has been a little bit tough, just personality wise, having to change a bit. Um, but I have incredible lawyers now. And I think that's another thing too, is if you surround yourself with people with like-minded visions who are hardworking and who care about the same things you care about, if they take the kind of work off your shoulder a bit and they're, and you're all working towards the same thing. So um, I have a great team and I, I always build the sports mentality. Like everyone has a role to play on the team and, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're less about the egos, more about the collective. Our, our loudest voice at our meetings now is our student intern, uh, who happens to be an international student telling me I need to get my things together every day and just like criticizing the heck out of me. But I, I like that culture because I, in many places in the past, I'm not saying other firms, but you know, in, in society in general, I, I see it opposite where there's a structure, where there's hierarchy, where there's, you have to meet the expectations. And, and to be honest, what makes people tired is that idea that you have to fit somebody's expectations or you have to please someone, or you have to do something to serve somebody um, so as much as I can eliminate those barriers from folks where it's like, you're doing it for yourself um, and our collective team. And, you know, we're, we're, we're all in this together. Um, I think that reduces so much stress and, and anxiety and tiredness from people's lives. Um, so I don't know. That, that's my approach. It's just trying to try to stay young in the practice while, while keeping busy. Um, but it's interesting. I actually don't feel that exhausted all the time, um, even with the kids and everything. It just seems to all kind of work. Although I don't know what the fall of number gonna... two. <laughs> yeah, I, I do not know what's going to happen there. But uh, yeah, dive in. One of the yeah. things that uh, Dennis McRae said when he was on the podcast was that um, his big regret was that he didn't take more six month sabbaticals. And I've thought about that line a lot since, and I haven't actually figured out how it would work in terms of being able to step aside completely for six months. I don't know if you've thought about it, Deanna, or Will, how you could even visualize, A, if that's something you'd want to just do a complete six-month break, um, six-month pat leave, although you're doing your LLM. Is that something that you you, you, you want to try to do? Or do you think it's even something important to do? I mean, for me, I would say I see myself close enough to like, I would be more like, I think I'm starting to envision retirement. Um, Not that I'm not that I'm there, but I'm sort of more like um, focusing on how do I get to that spot? Um, I don't see myself wanting to work until like, until I 
you know, I don't know. I just, I, I would like to retire earlier. That would be more my objective. I feel like the idea of stepping away and then coming back in would be super, super hard. Um, yeah. I mean, I so. look at the people who did that, not for as long, but practitioners who say went to be on a tribunal or went to be, well, went to do an LLM where they weren't also practicing at the same time, found yeah. coming back to be a challenge just even in terms of the amount of change. Yeah, the amount of change is so much and just like rebuilding your client base and just, you know, like, um, yeah, I just, I can't imagine myself being able to do that, walk away and then come back again. Um, yeah. One month I can maybe imagine, but six I can just imagine would be super, super hard. Mm-hmm. I, but- I, I think I can hear with both of you. I, I'd like to do, like keep my put in the door and have yeah. maybe less clients, but have them maybe both from like the value that I can provide them a higher value, but also maybe just like, and sometimes we'll be able to do it. And we talk to our clients about that. It's like, Hey, I'm not doing 50 cases. I'm doing five. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I, I, can you pay me for, for, for doing it as if you're one of my five priorities in life. And if some clients who will agree to do that, that could be a perfect balance because you're still in it, but you don't have to, stress yourself out over the the high volume which can sometimes bring people down in our work how uh are you preparing for pat leave are you going to take pat leave um as a business owner it's it's tough to do that um i'm starting Mm -hmm. to um delegate a bit i have younger team members that are eager to step up which has been great um and the lawyers i think are ready to take the next step but um no i'm not going to be taking pat leave um but i will be trying to work more from home and i think that the pandemic Frankly, that was the motivation for starting my own firm at the time when I decided to leave Edelman and do my own firm. It's like, I'm about to have a baby. The firm is in downtown. I live, I, I know I, I need to get a place for my family, growing family. I want to be close to home. I want everything to sort of be in a 10 minute radius and 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 focus on and, and be able to even have a virtual practice. It, it ended up being that we have now an office space, but it's still like, you know, Your whether or not- in downtown. It isn't in downtown. Closer to, uh, it's closer to where I live. It's 10 minutes away. Um, you know, whether the lawyers are flexible into whether they want to be here or not, case managers too. Um, so I I do suspect that I will like probably do a lot of my work being in the same room with the baby or holding the baby in the carrier and being at home doing it. Um, but the good thing with a lot of litigation work, the federal court work, a lot of our work is we can do that, right? And I and actually I've been on client calls in the past when I had my when I, with with Esme, the first uh my first my first daughter and um some clients were even like, great, bring the child along. Like, or like, we have a child too. Like, this is great that you're being able to balance both. I think clients are a little bit more understanding too, but that's also me choosing my clients, right? Like, yeah. I'm working with more kind of, na- like I said, neighborhood, regular folks going through tough time, clients who can under- appreciate that you don't have to like be in a suit all the time. Or, you know, if I was working for an HR at a very, you know, high volume business, they might be like, well, you know, we don't know if this person's really there or not. And, you know, whether, why are they, you know, saying these or doing this? We we have clients with different expectations in different places in their lives. And I think they they can resonate with us and they still know that we're, we're, we're putting all our effort and giving them good work. It's just that some of those other expectations. Um, yeah. I think clients are all more understanding. I had a uh, client call when I was driving my four-year-old and two-year-old the skating and i'm explaining on speakerphone how flag pulling works and there's two kids in the back yelling i spy i <laughs> gave up trying to get them to be quiet about 10 seconds into the call and the clients were totally 
totally cool with it. That is something that I think we're, I don't know the order, but it, it seems like since the pandemic, many younger lawyers have started firms where they aren't based downtown. They're in Coquitlam, they're in Burnaby, they're in uh, outside of the downtown core. And I do wonder if that is going to be like one of the legacies of the pandemic is that quote unquote, the allure of the downtown firm uh, may be fading if it hasn't faded. Mm-hmm. And also virtual offices, right? Where mm-hmm. folks realized where you know, they had big offices, but do clients now, some clients prefer being virtual. Some clients prefer being able to share their most intimate stories at their own time on a weekend in their in their room with their family over virtual call versus having to take a day off work, drive downtown. Yeah. Um, so I think the flexibility of our services is also like it's changing drastically. I have a lot of clients asking for after hours meetings and stuff like that. And that does require me to, you know, change my my own approach of when I am available and you know, family time might be a little bit earlier, take some time in the evening to make a call to my client and yeah. When you in. worked at uh, LR, I would say that you, and we we talked about this, that um, that ability to disconnect and not constantly be on WeChat for clients was, mm-hmm. I think, something you were working on. Um, yeah. Do you find more like an ability to disconnect or is it still? Yeah, I, I've told clients no, I'm not doing WeChat anymore. I think a little bit of time in the in the trenches doing a little bit of the work over, you know, I know we, this is an episode about young lawyers, but I still have practice for a little bit, right? I'm what is it uh, called in 2015? So I'm I'm heading towards I think so almost my eight year um, call anniversary yeah. next week. Um, so I mean time has flown by, um, but I think after you've gone through a couple of difficult experiences with clients, you've seen the scope of things. You don't have to deal with like every single thing could be a, a fire. Every single you know, there was a time in time when you start practicing, you think every client is a potential lost side complaint, right? I mean, there's there's times yeah. in your, when you when you start doing the work where you think that is the case, where it's like, if I don't respond to them today, they won't be. I am still quick in responding because I feel like that's as a younger lawyer who's always on my phone and, you know, always on Twitter. Like it, it is a value that I can provide of just, you know, giving quicker responses and maybe being the first one to respond to an inquiry and say, hey, I'm interested in helping you uh, is a way I can retain clients. Um, but that being said, I mean, there are, there are numerous times where I'll have my phone completely off and, and turn off. I don't allow any clients to share WeChat or share anything with me. I don't trust the platform as well and just generally for any legal advice or sharing stuff. So building those boundaries has been very effective. And of course, having good case managers who can take off that load a bit and be client facing. That's one thing I think I do I do a little bit differently at this firm compared to other firms I've been at maybe is like our, our case managers are very, very client facing. Um and I've gotten to them to the point where sometimes I think the clients prefer to work with them. They just need me to, you know, maybe it's the uh, the optometry, the, the 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 dentist model where the dentist comes at the end and just kind of you know does that thing. Yeah. Um, but they like it because they they like the case managers. They like their ability to communicate. They like their the the, the services in their own language sometimes. Uh, and and I and I step in when I need to. And I'm you know, but uh, it's been an effective model uh, more so than just having them do you know set up templates or whatnot. Yeah. When we had, um, and I want to be conscious of the the time, when we had um, an episode dedicated to uh, three lawyers who were former Department of Justice lawyers, all of whom were women, they discussed issues that they faced transitioning from government to private practice and some issues that they faced being women. And I think um, 
I can't remember if it was Rafina, but I think so, that said that, you know, she would be in hearings and people would think that she was the interpreter or things mm. like that because uh, just of her gender plus um, being a visible minority. In starting your own firm, and I know that you, for lack of better term, do a lot of work on systemic discrimination issues. Have you found being either I could say Chinese or a visible minority, mm -hmm. has that created any obstacles in your ability to successfully run a firm or practice immigration law? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do think volume wise, you know, we would be busier if I was an older whiter lawyer, right? I mean, I, I think I've had you know, folks tell me that they, you know, where's the, where's the old white guy that I want to work with? Um, even still, as I run my own firm. Um, but you know what? I, I've taken a different approach to this. I think we have a role to educate. We have a role to be different. I think that's what we started, why we started, why I started at, a, at earlier ages. I wanted to be saying to say, Hey, as, as racialized practitioners, we can start our own thing. We can do our own thing. We can be a small business. We can, um, practice with uh, a, with these bigger societal community goals in mind. We can be a social enterprise as a law firm, as opposed to just a pure profit making law firm. So those were things that really inspired the journey, and I think clients gravitate to us. And I think it's not also uh, a surprise that our client base is younger and is racialized and is you know referred from friends of friends through the network, through Twitter, through social media, through stuff. So. Yes, it can be frustrating, but at the same time, um, I'm working on trying to play to the strengths and of what we have going on. And um, I have younger lawyers that are, you know, first to your to your calls that are practicing as if they're fifth year calls because I think they're they're instilled with that confidence that they're working with clients who will respect them and who will um, who who will who do they gravitate towards? Who it's almost like helping a friend out. Um, if they had to work as a second year call for like the CEO or for the HR of like some big company, I think they would have a different feeling and people would try to go over their heads and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. I think just picking the right clients has yeah, been definitely. crucial for us. Yeah. And I think my last question is, uh, when are you running for Justin Trudeau's job? <laughs> no, I, I can't, I can't <laughs> do politics right now. And especially, uh, you know, right now, Ooh. right now, specifically right now, because of, I mean, also, <laughs> What's going on with a lot of the Chinese Canadian politicians? I mean, that, I mean, that's a whole podcast topic on itself, but it's it's been difficult to kind of watch that and see, you know. Are you um, talking in terms of like people possibly associating anyone who runs who's Chinese as being a CCP affiliate or because of possible pressure from the CCP on Chinese Canadians who may run? I'm more on the I'm I'm more on that first one. And again, I, I'm yeah. okay. I'm okay. I've been I've been very vocal about this stuff, but I, I think the bigger challenge is um were a lot of amazing politicians who have absolutely nothing to do with what's going on yeah. in China right now or in the political tug of war that's going on are going to be thrown into that debate as the first, as the visible, like first question. Wow. And that will put them in very, very compromised situations just because of stuff like having family there. 
in stuff that they frankly never maybe have ever even thought about or invested. I think that's the thing. It's like a lot of us grew up around it, this topic with not necessarily a silence, but it just wasn't talked around the dinner table. We didn't talk about Chinese history. We didn't talk about the roots. And some of it may be coming from privilege where some folks have come here without that story behind them. And it's like, we just don't want to talk about that that period of time. But now I think every Chinese politician, Canadian politician, that will be the first question asked. And I, I, I really hope it isn't because there's so much more to narrative. There's so much more in the nuance. And there should be space to, for folks to share their actual stories away from the politics of the diaspora. Um, I think that is, is going to be difficult. So that part of me, why I can't. The other one, other major reason um, is that uh, I'm just not good at lying and fake <laughs> i i just can't look in someone that i promise something and actually knows that it's never gonna happen like that just yeah that's that's the wow. one thing in life i can't <laughs> yeah well i think that that's what might make you a very refreshing change uh we'll, we'll see but i mean honestly I, i'm enjoying the practice i have a young family we have a little you know vehicle here um a lot of cool people on the ride a lot of mentors like yourselves who've shown me the pathway so you know I, i'm just really just enjoying this this period of time and and again just not trying to burn myself out folks who say it's it's a marathon yeah. not a it is not a, a race um you sure. know uh, life expectancy in, in, in the, the male lineage of my family isn't great. So if I can even just get to my sixties and still be able to practice and lift my grandkids up, like that's, that's, that's a goal in life itself, right? Like yeah. whether or not, you know, how much money I make, whether or how big my house is, like where we have a, a small property here where we're, we're comfortable enough. And and sometimes it's okay to be comfortable and just say, yeah. you know what, you have a good thing going and just keep it going. Right. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to fall into that. You're not overwhelmed is that that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold, uh, thing to be yeah no, I, I i think I, I make my time and i still like you know you know i, I have my distresses of watching youtube and watching basketball and finding things <laughs> like listening listening to stuff that i'm really interested in and Excellent. outside of work too so are you still rapping? uh the rap career has taken a bit of a break so is the writing and poetry <laughs> um but you know what i and the one thing about doing the lm that i think will be very exciting is it'll get me writing like yeah. like i have no choice yeah. um so writing on these topics, thinking through them a bit more, looking into the more race equity side of law as well. Um, it'll be really interesting to see where our practice goes. I mean, I think I could even, it may even turn into a consulting business as opposed to a law firm moving forward. And that may be where we have to be as lawyers moving forward if, you know, systems and computers and tech run the actual work. Yeah, maybe I, we're the consultants for the yeah. system. Who knows? But Yeah, I don't have any personally, I don't have too much worry that the work is going to go away. I think uh, it might just shift in terms of, uh, I see the misrepresentation practice taking a massive Fun. increase, but uh, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Everything I've said was first written by ChatGPT on this call. So. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course it was. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back on, especially yeah. that, if nothing else, to discuss your thesis. Yeah, well, I'll tell you all about it. I think Steve has read a bit of the draft of it, but it'll 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 work its way out. Thank you so much for the invite. It's been uh, yeah, yeah, it's been yeah amazing. Too long. Should have done it yes, sooner. Definitely. For yeah, sure. no, thank you. Honored to be on. Yeah. All right. Take care, sir. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 